Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. It's now one minute to 12 o'clock, so you can set your watches now. Thank you. I'd like to welcome everybody to the first SACPA session in 2015. My name is Graham Greenlee. I will be your moderator today. This session is being recorded, so please turn your cell phones off now. The cost of the session is $11, and there's a basket on each table where you can put your money, please. Uh, someone will be around to collect it a little before lunch. SACPA is a volunteer nonprofit organization in its 48th season. We depend on the contributions of members and session attendees to help cover expenses. Memberships may be purchased and renewed from SACPA's administrative manager, Annalise Van Ors. Annalise is sitting right, right here, convenient to take your money. I'd like to thank our partners in crime, or not crime, sorry. <laughs> University of Lethbridge for their support and distribution of notices. Country Kitchen Catering for the delicious lunches that they always provide. Shaw TV Channel 9 for broadcasting sessions several times a week, including nightly at 7 p.m. CKXU 88.3 FM Radio Live, Lethbridge Herald, and any other media that covers uh, SACPA events. The format for the session today is... 25 to 30 minutes for each third of the program. First, our speaker. Second, lunch. Third, the question period. And we'll finish about 1.30 p.m. Today's topic is Arctic War or Arctic Peace. And today's speaker is Dr. Michael Byers. Michael is a graduate of Lethbridge Collegiate Institute right here in Lethbridge. Michael holds the Canada Research Chair in Global Politics and International Law at the University of British Columbia. He has been a fellow of Jesus College, Oxford University, a professor of law at Duke University, and a visiting professor at the universities of Cape Town, Tel Aviv, Nordland, which is Norway, and Novosibirsk. That's in Russia. Uh, I'm not sure whether I'm pronouncing that right. <laughs> Michael's work focuses on Arctic security, the law of the sea, and Canada-U.S.-Russia relations. He is a project leader with ArcticNet, 
a Canadian government-funded consortium of scientists from 30 universities. His most recent book is International Law and the Arctic, published by Cambridge University Press in 2013. Michael is a well-known commentator on national and international news stories. He is a regular contributor to the Globe and Mail, National Post, and Toronto's Star. He's sitting here relaxing, I, I think. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Dr. Michael Byers. Thank you. It's great to to be here. Um, I realize that this has been broadcast, so unusually I'm going to keep the time. Uh, I, I'm going to start by telling you of a trip that I took um, last month uh, to, to the considerable surprise of uh, uh, the administration of uh, Novosibirsk State University. Um, a foreign guest agreed to travel to Siberia in December. <laughs> uh, I had to explain to them that I was Canadian and not just Canadian, but also a prairie boy, at which point they nodded and understood. Um, Novosibirsk is, incidentally, uh, a city of 1.5 million people uh, that is exactly at the uh, same uh, latitude as Edmonton and uh, the weather is almost identical uh, to the capital city of, of this province. Um, so yes, it, it can be cold. Uh, but to start off my trip, um, I boarded uh, an Aeroflot flight uh, at London Heathrow Airport. Um, the uh, plane was a uh, brand new uh, Airbus uh, 321. Uh, the in-flight food service uh, for everyone included was excellent, unlike Air Canada. Um, and uh, there was legroom in economy. Um, I, I was uh, on the plane with uh, a considerable number of uh, young uh, Russians, teenage Russians, who were coming home for the holiday break from their elite British boarding schools. The children of uh, the autocrats uh, go to school at Eton. Um, we uh, landed in uh, Moscow at uh, a gleaming new uh, modern air terminal, uh, which had all of the brand name shops that you would see in the uh, high streets of Paris or London. Uh, I then switched to another brand new Airbus and flew another four and a half hours to the east. So I landed in Novosibirsk, just north of the border between Kazakhstan and Mongolia. But guess what? It would have been another five hours flight further to the east to get to Vladivostok. Russia is a big country. Novosibirsk um, in December, uh, mid-December, is beautiful. Uh, fresh snow was falling the whole time that I was there. The 
Lights were up along all the streets. We call them Christmas lights. They, they're New Year's lights uh, in Russia. Christmas comes a, a little bit later uh, in uh, early January. Uh, and uh, people were walking along the streets on the sidewalks of the downtown in all of their fur coats. There were fabulous shops, restaurants. I stayed in a brand-new Marriott five-star hotel just beside the old opera house. Most of the vehicles on the streets were BMWs, uh, Mercedes, uh, Lexus, um, all this to say that that Russia has been doing rather well uh, economically over the course of the last uh, 10 years. Uh, Novosibirsk, uh, essentially the capital city of Siberia, the treasure trove of natural resources of the largest country on earth. Um, the highlight of my stay in Novosibirsk um, was uh, uh, a lecture I gave to 150 uh, Russian law students. Um, and after all the formal introductions, the dean of the law school and the professors went off to do something else, and I was left with these 150 Russian kids. My uh, translator, a woman, woman named Olga with a great sense of humor and perspective, waited until the door had closed behind the professors, turned to the audience of students and said, you all understand English, right? <laughs> she then sat down and I engaged in a Socratic dialogue with Russian students whose English is just as good as my students at UBC. Because these kids, these Russian kids, are children of the 21st century. They're on the Internet. They want to work for an international law firm, not necessarily in Russia, perhaps in, in London or New York. They are global citizens. They're connected with the world, and English is the lang lingua franca, franca of, of the 21st century. Um, we had a very candid conversation, um, and it was very clear to me that... Um, they were not particularly pleased with the current situation in Russia. Um, they uh, uh, were a bit uh, uh, uncomfortable about the fact that, that, that tensions had arisen between their country and the West because they saw that as having negative consequences um, for their country and for themselves. One of which was that during my four days in, uh, in Russia, um, the ruble lost 30% of its value against the U.S. dollar. And the Russian central bank raised its lending rate by close to 10% within four days, right? Um, I mean, things are, are happening, partly the sanctions from the West, and we can talk about just how serious or unserious those sanctions are, but most notably the more than 50% drop in the world price for oil. Because Russia, like Alberta, is a petrostate, right? Their entire economic plan is based upon the uh, extraction of, of oil and gas and the shipment of that overseas. And, um, and, and their economy has been shattered by this price drop. And, and with it, perhaps, uh, Vladimir Putin's uh, long-term popularity, because Putin is popular uh, in Russia uh, he's popular first and foremost because he was the president during the rise from the economic collapse of the 1990s. Putin's popularity is based upon the incredible growth in the Russian economy that was fueled by high 
prices for oil. Um, and when you deliver that, and, and the, the crisis in Russia in the 1990s was excruciating for Russians. Uh, the, 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 the drop in the life expectancy of over a decade, just a reflection of the kind of grinding poverty that, that resulted from, from that collapse. Um, and so I don't know what will happen if the low price of oil continues, whether Putin will remain in power. Um, I mean, this is like asking whether Stephen Harper will remain in power with a oil price of just, let's say, 50 or 40 or $30 a barrel. Um, it, it certainly is likely to have an impact. Um, before I talk specifically about the Arctic, I want to tell you one more um, anecdote about my visit um, because it is um, significant uh, to us here. And that is that uh, during one day of my visit, there was a, a conference um, that, uh, that had been organized uh, where I spoke, but also a number of, uh, of Russian uh, scientists and academics. Um, and it was fascinating for a whole bunch of reasons, um, the, the most important of which was a climatologist from the Russian Academy of Sciences who, who gave a long talk, an hour and a half talk, uh, about the science of climate change and the impacts of climate change on Russia. And uh, his understanding of the science was 100% consistent with the latest reports of the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It was a public conference. Government scientists, Russian Academy of Sciences, senior government scientists, laying it out in the most unequivocal terms. This is the latest science. And we have to leave most of that oil and gas and coal in the ground. Okay? So he's speaking in the middle of an economic collapse caused by a plummeting of the price of oil in his petrostate in a country that is not a democracy, that is governed by a thug named Vladimir Putin whose political opponents disappear, Right? Okay, Putin is worse than Stephen Harper, right? <laughs> I mean, Putin's opponents disappear, right? And yet, he was able to give an unvarnished, objective, scientific presentation of the facts of climate change. And I was at dinner with him later, and I made a point of sitting beside him because I thought this was really interesting. And so I, I commented on this. I said, I'm a bit surprised. I mean, you, you live in, in, a, in a dictatorship. I have heard your president, personally heard your president, deny that climate change is caused by humans. I, I heard Putin say this in, in 2000, 2009, 2010, sorry, 2010, September 2010. I heard the Russian president deny that that climate change was caused by humans. He said it was part of a natural cycle. He had seen fossilized tree stumps in the Arctic. Ergo, this was normal, thus demonstrating a lack of understanding of plate tectonics, the fact that those tree trunks had probably been much further south at the time that they grew. Um, so I said, look, you know, a president's a climate change denier. You live in a, a dictatorship. It's a petro-state, and yet you can say this as a, as a government scientist. And he looked at me and said, of course. He says, Russia values science. Science can't contribute to the country unless it's allowed to be free. Yeah. 
And, and Novosibirsk is a science city, let me just say, because in the 1950s, Russia moved half of its scientists to central Siberia to locate them beyond the reach of American B-52 bombers. And so there is a science city at Novosibirsk. It's called Academic Gorok. It's just outside of the city, and it has 70,000, 70,000 scientists and technicians. And they continue to do excellent world-leading work, and guess what? They're all funded by the Russian government. Strange. I mean, we, we miss out on these things, right? Or, or we, 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 in the West, we, we, we sometimes uh, fail to understand um, how the Ukrainian crisis might be seen from the perspective of Russia. And, and put aside all the government propaganda, and, and, and particularly the television propaganda, all of which is controlled by Putin, and all of which is, it's like, Sun TV everywhere, right? Okay? I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing else, right? It's, it's, it's strict Sun TV, pro-Putin in Russia. Um, but you put all that aside and you start talking with Russians about Ukraine and they say, well, you know, um, a democratically elected president was overthrown in a coup. They go, oh, yes, you're right. The pro-Russian president had been democratically elected and was actually deposed from power. Huh. And then they they say, well, you know, and then the first thing the new government did was to stop the official status of Russia, Russian uh, 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 as an official language in, in Ukraine. And then they say, and, and you know, Crimea was up until 1952 part of Russia and was only allocated to Ukraine when Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union along with Russia. And, and now that it's not, you know, there is a legitimate question as to where it should go. I'm not, you know, persuaded by these arguments. Um, and then they would say, look, and, and NATO has expanded all the way up to, to the border of Russia. The Baltic states are now NATO states. Right, and and we feel, Russians say we feel like we've been taken advantage of over the course of the last twenty five years because of our weakness. After the collapse of the Soviet Union and those terrible years during the nineteen nineties, we feel like like we've been taken advantage of by the West. And then they start talking about U.S. missile defense and their concerns about how that's really directed uh, against them. Uh, all this to say that that. They have a different perspective. It's not the right perspective, but our perspective isn't necessarily the correct perspective, too. The truth is often somewhere in between the, the two extremes. Which brings me to the Arctic. So Putin is popular. Putin is riding nationalism. Putin is dealing with an economic crisis. Putin will be worried about his ongoing popularity. Um, and you would think that, that the Arctic would be an obvious place for him to take off his shirt, as he's done in the past, and thump the chest of Arctic sovereignty, right? And, and, and promote uh, tension and potentially confrontation in the Arctic as a distraction away from his problems elsewhere. And that's not happening. It's not happening. There's a really interesting historic story, which I'll, I'll tell very quickly. I, I want to go back, first of all, to, to 1973. Because it's important to recognize that Russia has been cooperating with other countries in the Arctic for a long time. 
1973, um, scientists from all the different Arctic countries told their governments that the polar bear was at threat of extinction in 1973. Because of the invention and widespread uh, use of helicopters, helicopters being used to hunt polar bears. It's a very effective way of hunting a polar bear. If you're down on the ice with a polar bear, the polar bear's actually got a reasonably good chance because it's you know, 1,500 pounds of meat-eating muscle, right? And it can blend into the snow and the ice, and it can run faster than your snowmobile, uh, right? Helicopter, it's game over. Right? Polar bear loses 100% of the time. And there were only, and still are only, around 20,000 polar bears in the entire Arctic. So the big game hunting from helicopters was decimating the population and the trajectory was very steeply down. Scientists came together, said to their governments, look, we're going to lose the polar bear unless you do something. Height of the Cold War, 1973. Governments of the Arctic countries got together and negotiated the Polar Bear Treaty. The Polar Bear Treaty. Very, very simple treaty. It says, thou shalt not hunt polar bears from helicopters. That, that, I'm paraphrasing, but that's the treaty. And uh, it was implemented in all the Arctic countries, and the polar bears survived. Now to be threatened by climate change. But it's a remarkable story of cooperation focused on, on saving a species that is iconic in all the Arctic states. Just to give you a, a couple more examples, um, some of you will remember how... Uh, the United States sent a ice-strengthened supertanker through the Northwest Passage in 1969, the SS Manhattan, and how Canada responded by adopting the Arctic Waters Pollution Prevention Act um, and then uh, pushed to have equivalent provisions included in the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which was being drafted during the 1970s and early 1980s. Our partnership in that effort to get Arctic uh, pollution prevention jurisdiction uh, recognized in international law, our partner in that effort was the Soviet Union. And Canada and the Soviet Union together persuaded the United States to go along with these new provisions. And after the Law of the Sea Convention was adopted with those provisions, the Russians then adopted regulations that are almost identical to Canada's Arctic Waters Pollution Prevention Act. The regulations that, that govern uh, safety and pollution prevention along the northern coast of Russia are based on Canada's laws because they partnered with us in that effort. I could go on. Just after the Cold War, the creation of the Arctic Council through the Ottawa Declaration creating a new regional organization for the Arctic that focused first and foremost on environmental protection. An essential partner in that was Russia. And you couldn't create an organization for the Arctic without having Russia. Right? It is the largest country in the world and 40% of it's Arctic. Um, it had to be there and it wanted to be there. And remarkably, Russia agreed with Canada to give a place at the table for... Arctic indigenous peoples who are permanent participants, not observers, but actually sit at the front table with the nation states. 
Russia has a lot of Arctic indigenous peoples. doesn't treat them very well, but, but at least internationally was prepared to give them uh, some status. Uh, moving forward from that under the Arctic Council, uh, just uh, four years ago now, um, the adoption of a treaty for Arctic search and rescue. First treaty adopted under the auspices of the Arctic Council on search and rescue. And I asked my students, well, why did they start with search and rescue? And the student who's going to get that 95% at the end of the course puts up her hand and says, because it's easy to agree on saving lives. Right? It's easy to agree on saving lives because at that point, the Good Samaritan principle kicks in and national borders and boundaries fade in significance. That treaty was adopted in 2011 and the most spectacular implementation of it actually occurred just last month. So this is during the height of all these tensions about Ukraine, right? December 2014. South Korean fishing boat, big fishing boat, 350-foot fishing boat, um, is fishing in Russian waters in the Bering Sea on the Russian side of the maritime boundary in an area that is subject to Russian jurisdiction for search and rescue. It is swamped by a rogue wave, which gets into the um, innards of the ship. It, it founders, it, it sinks. Again, Russian waters in the Bering Sea. The first airplane on the scene is a U.S. Coast Guard C-130 Hercules from Dutch Harbor in the Aleutian Islands. The first ship on the scene is a U.S. Coast Guard cutter, also out of Dutch Harbor in the Aleutians. They're searching in Russian territorial waters because under the new search and rescue treaty, they can do that. Because they now have all of each other's contact details. They're connected by email and telephone like that. And the first thing Russia did was say, we need help. And the U.S. Coast Guard was there. And you didn't hear about this because it's not a conflict story. It's a cooperation story. Most of the people on the, the fishing trawler were lost, more than 50, but, but seven or eight were saved. So there is this, this cooperation that occurs. Now, now you, you're, you're going to ask about Stephen Harper and whether he buys into this cooperation. And it's really curious that, that, that in, in, in public, Mr. Harper usually beats his chest about Arctic sovereignty and expresses concern uh, about Russia. Uh, in private, he, he, he's, uh, he's much more conciliatory. And uh, we know, for instance, from WikiLeaks that in private he told the Secretary General of NATO that there was no role for NATO in the Arctic because relations with Russia in the Arctic were good. That was back in, in 2010. Um, but he's had, has said similar things uh, since then. But the most significant example of how Stephen Harper actually understands uh, that uh, relations with Russia aren't as bad as, as they, they might seem uh, 
um, is evidenced in Canada's sanctions regime. Uh, the Canadian government will tell you that it has sanctioned more companies and individuals in Russia than any other Western country. And that's true. We have. But we haven't sanctioned anyone or any company that has significant economic relations with Canada. You would have probably heard of Rosneft, which is uh, Russia's massive state-owned oil company. Um, I believe it has the largest reserves of any oil company in the world. Um, and and Rosneft's uh, CEO, uh, a man named uh, Sachin, um, used to be Putin's chief of staff. They're very, very close. Sachin is considered the second most powerful man in Russia. And he and his company have been sanctioned by both the United States and the European Union. Not Canada. Not Canada. Because Rosneft has a joint venture with Exxon uh, in a uh, shale oil formation here in Alberta. And uh, Mr. Harper's not about to interfere with that. Uh, Rostec, uh, the massive Russian uh, manufacturing uh, conglomerate, also run by an old friend of Mr. Putin's, um, has been sanctioned by the United States and by the European Union and not by Canada because Rostec and Bombardier have been uh, negotiating uh, for a joint venture that would see hundred, hundreds of Q400 commuter planes uh, built uh, in Russia under license from Bombardier. I could go on. Um, now, why this discrepancy? Well, I think the main reason for the discrepancy is that, um, that Canada needs a good relationship with Russia more than some of the other countries involved in these sanctions. Because like Russia, we are a big, serious Arctic country, and we share an awful lot of interests with regards to the Arctic. Uh, we share interests in terms of uh, the peaceful resolution of disputes, the avoidance of militarization, which is incredibly expensive in the Arctic. It could bankrupt both Russia and Canada if we had to militarize that region. Um, there's a, a general recognition that there's a, a lot of, of common interest in, in terms of shipping regulation. We want to maintain that, that implicit joint position that we have with Russia with regards to the Northwest Passage and the Northern Sea Route, where our legal disputant is uh, the United States. Um, so there's, a, I think, a, a different quality to the calculation of self-interest that uh, Mr. Harper... Um, you know, uh, uh, talk's a tough talk, but, but when it comes to, to the pragmatics of the relationship, he recognizes that, that we actually uh, share an awful lot in common. And who knows? Um, uh, I won't express an opinion on this, but, but Mr. Harper might feel a certain affinity with Mr. Putin's approach to politics. Um, they are both strong men. Um, and, and not entirely respectful of, of democracy. One last thing <laughs> I want to comment on. Um, and that is that uh, uh, as we, we move forward in time, it's important to, uh, to recognize that, uh, that Canada, and our, Canada and Russia are also both acutely exposed to climate change, probably more than any other countries on the planet. 
because the Arctic is at the forefront of climate change where the effects are much more advanced than anywhere else, where the feedback loops are much more powerful. Just think of the melting permafrost or the, the gas hydrates that are being released from the seabed of the Arctic Ocean now. Uh, the disappearance of entire ecosystems as the sea ice uh, recedes um, and uh, is replaced by open water. Um, Mr. Putin, as I mentioned, is a climate change denier. So, too, I would suggest, is the Canadian Prime Minister. Um, but once we get beyond those two men, um, we're going to need people like that Russian climatologist who I told you about. And we're going to need Canadian scientists and we're going to need Canadian uh, policymakers uh, to, to grapple with the true reality of what's happening scientifically, environmentally, and ultimately ec economically because uh, the economic impacts of climate change are going to dwarf everything else that, that we do. Um, so, so when I talk about common interests and I say that Harper sees some common interests with Russia, he's still missing the big common interest, which is our common plight at the forefront of the most devastating um, change that, that our species uh, will likely ever see. Um, and uh, everything we do in the Arctic is shaped by climate change, and everything that uh, we do uh, to cooperate in the future will be conditioned by that phenomena. Uh, we're in this together with Russians and every other people on the planet. And when I look and talk with those young Russian students, they get this. They understand this as much as my Canadian students do. Thank you very much.